0: We're in Second and Third John this morning, uh, <clears throat> these two books. Of course, we're studying them together not only because of the size uh, and the common author, but because of the timing. What we're dealing with at this point is uh, general epistles. We're at the end of the New Testament, and these books were written generally, is what we call them, general epistles, because it's difficult to tell exactly who was supposed to be the recipient of the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and it may not have been the exact same uh, and probably wasn't the exact same place, but it does appear to be that these three books were written to congregations in Asia Minor, and we know several congregations that are in Asia Minor. Uh, We know about the church at Ephesus and the church in Philippi, and and the church in Colossae, and when you get to Revelation chapters two and three, you read about several churches that are in that Asia Minor area. So, not a hundred percent certain as to uh, as to which you know congregation Second John and Third John is written to. In fact, it appears that at least a portion of this is to individual. Uh, and Third John and some believe that Second John was as well, but it was a part of a congregation, or that person was at least a part of a congregation, and they're having problems. And these three books kind of connect together, in that First John is dealing with their fellowship uh, with God. And then Second John deals with the problem of error coming in and how they were not to be involved with that. And then Third John deals a little bit more in their relationship to each other, fellowship with their brethren and everything, and problems that are associated with that. Because see, you remember, and we'll get into this more in a week and a half, two weeks, something like that when we're uh, beginning the book of Revelation, but... You know, as you go through, especially chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, and you do do read about those seven churches that are at least identified in that book, you know that uh, there were some significant problems in those congregations by the end of the first century. And if these books, as I believe the evidence says, uh, were written around 90 to 92, 93, all about the same time A.D., then you know that what was happening in the congregations by the time John writes Revelation in 98... AD that those things were already at least starting to happen if not already highly involved in these churches in Asia Minor. And so because of that what has happened is John writes these letters to try to protect them and teach them their responsibility before God and their responsibility to each other. Now a part of what has happened is uh, you know John's the last living apostle right and so it's not like you know these apostles are now making mission trips or whatever and so what has happened is as people have been converted and they have had hands laid on them they then become the teachers and others and and as paul was writing to timothy you remember that's what he told timothy not only that he had helped prepare timothy and trained timothy and mentored him if you will but timothy's responsibility was to teach others who would then be able to teach others and so what ended up happening was others began to travel and teach and and all of that and as a consequence of that it became Mankind has not changed a lot over the years, and it worked out the same way in the end of the first century as it works today, and that is as people started traveling around and teaching and preaching in various places, what uh, was popular became easy to teach. And so people wanted to be popular, and they wanted to be liked, and they, including preachers or teachers, and so as they would go out, there were some of these people who were teaching things that were not true. And uh, so John uses the opportunity in these books to, to, to oppose that. Now, in the book of 2 John, which is where we're going to start in just a moment, uh, as I've already said, what John's dealing with is error. Peter has talked about that. John has already talked about it in the book of 1 John. He's talked about walking in the light, and that means avoiding the darkness. And now in 2 John, he gets a little bit more, I guess, specific as to the fears that were going on in the congregations around Asia Minor. So, 2 John, verse 1. Uh, The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. Now I know that's not the end of the sentence, but I want to stop there just to identify two things. One of them is when John writes of himself as the elder, the word the words being used here is he's old. Uh, and that is what the word literally means. There is an office of the, of an elder who a, man, a person who is a part of the elder ship. But the word itself just means John is an older man uh he has uh he has gone through a lot he's the last living apostle at this point his health is deteriorating and uh and at this place he's just telling him look all the things that i have learned and the things that i've gained and the things i've experienced i want you to know i'm passing these out to you now obviously he's doing it by inspiration but still the holy spirit used the experiences and the opportunities and the talents of the people who wrote correct so john says look As an older, wiser, uh, somebody who's gained a lot and even made some mistakes along the way, I've learned and I want to pass this on to you. And he says he's writing to the elect lady and her children. Now that creates a lot of discussion in the the commentaries. I don't really think it's that important, to be honest with you. Uh, But I do want to tell you what I think. What I think is he's using this idea of the elect lady as an identification of the church you find significant times throughout the New Testament where the church is described as the bride of Christ or something similar to that uh and in fact in in ephesians john uh paul would call it the body of Christ right uh so I think that frequently what this this references this idea of the church being the the bride or uh, a female if you will in that pronoun usage or whatever is is significant and so it's used here by john i think to describe the church and what the church is collectively is what her children are individually we are right so he's writing this letter to the church but the danger is and, and this happens frequently how many times do you suppose that myself or somebody else has got up and preached a lesson and somewhere in that lesson there was a good point and you thought boy i sure am glad so-and-so's here to hear that I'm sure, I'm glad. Boy, if you talk about marriage and relationship and marriage, you husbands and wives start elbowing each other. Right? Because there's sure I'm glad you're I hope. Did you listen? I wrote that down so you can hear it later. So there's a danger in that. So as John writes this letter, he's writing it to the church, but what he identifies is look, this is for every single one of you individually who make up this, this body, this church. Now I'm certain it would have been circulated as well, but the point is I think he's writing to the church. Some people believe. That there's some specific unnamed or uh, not specifically named lady and her children that he's writing to. And you know that's possible in the text. I just don't think it fits some of the things that he says. So John's writing this. He's older. He's got experience and learning and maturity and all of that. And he's writing to the church and each individual member. So let's start there again and keep going this time. To the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth... And not only I, but also all those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us and we will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God the Father, from the Lord Jesus Christ, from the Son of the Father, in truth and in love. Now I want to start with that last part, and that is this is a greeting or this letter is by inspiration from God the Father and Jesus who is the... Son of the Father. Remember one of the things that was happening and being taught, especially in the area of Asia Minor, was that idea that Jesus was really just a man and that deity just came upon him upon baptism. And then at the end, before he died, deity left. And, and there are others who taught that he really wasn't in the flesh at all, that he was just kind of deity here. And so right in the beginning, what John is doing is he's setting the stage for where he's going to go by mentioning the fact that Jesus really is God and he really did come to the earth in flesh form. But in between that... He talks about that relationship that they have with his love toward them. And notice how he phrases it. all the, He loves all those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us. He, know, he loves all those who know the truth because of the truth. Doesn't that seem like an odd way of wording that? Why would John love everybody who knows the truth? Yeah, There is a sense, obviously, in which we're supposed to love everybody, right? There's a sense in where... I mean, the Bible teaches you to love your enemies, right? If if the Bible teaches you to love your enemies, then everybody in between has got to be assumed, at least. So the Bible teaches us in a sense that we're to love everybody. But isn't there something different about family? And family are those people who follow the truth, right? So he says, the reason I have this great love for you is because you know the truth... But then he says, how did he word it there in verse 2? Because of the truth. So not only that they know the truth, but because he knows the truth. See, that's the thing. I've talked about this a lot lately, relationships with each other. uh, And that's what he's hitting out here. We have a responsibility to each other, not just because you know the truth, but because I know the truth. In other words, I'm supposed to love you because of my relationship with God, regardless of whether you love me back. It's not based upon you at all. You follow the truth, but my love for you is based on my knowledge of God's truth for me. See, that's the way we we fail in our world today in in many times. And that is, we we don't love somebody who's not positive to us. We don't love somebody who doesn't give back at least as much as we give and maybe more. We'd really prefer more, right? We don't love somebody who is, you know... just not in the same wavelength as we are i 'm not talking about things that are necessarily wrong or right i 'm just talking about you just don 't always get along with everybody, so how do you keep and and you know i 'm talking about this word love, not in the emotion sense right Love is a commitment it 's a choice all right so how do you choose to commit and love somebody who 's not really somebody that fits with you anybody ever anybody here have siblings? grew up with remember remember I remember back when I was like 10 years old we took a vacation we had one of those old station wagons that had the seats in the back you know that would come up out of the floor yeah and we had a family that was really close to my mom and dad and the the husband wife and that family were very close and they had three daughters and we had two I have two sisters and myself all of us piled in that uh, car Uh, most of us obviously in the back, and pulled a pop-up camper through the Smoky Mountains for two weeks vacation. That was a pleasant trip. You believe that? Yeah, what we call that is bonding, don't we? When your kids are in the back seat arguing about who touched who or who crossed the middle line in the seat, it's about bonding, right? You don't always get along, right? But you do have a commitment to each other because of family, right? Okay, that's what John's saying here. He's saying, I have a commitment to you. Oh, and by the way... The reason that commitment's there is because of what God teaches me and because you're part of the family, too. All right, so what does it mean? Well, let's keep reading. I rejoice greatly that I have found... Anybody have... What's the next word? Some... anybody, Anybody have it italicized? Yeah, and you've heard me say before that when a word is italicized like that in the translation, it's supposed to mean that it is something that has been provided by the translator that wasn't necessarily in the text, right? And it's not wrong. It's just something to help us explain. But I think sometimes it causes us to misunderstand the text because the translator maybe didn't understand it the way that I see the context. But So let me read that without that word some. I rejoice greatly that I found of your children walking in truth as we receive the commandment of the Father. I don't think John's writing to the church and saying, look, I'm really thankful that there's a few members or some of the members of the church there are doing the right thing. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is, the reason I know that this church that I'm writing to is a great church is because what I know is the individual members are living their lives according to what God desires for them to be. How many times do you suppose if we were to take a list from, I don't know, if we were to take a poll throughout the country of preachers or members of the church or whatever and we were to ask them tell us what are the things that make a great church how many things do you think we'd get I mean I realize different cultures around our country and different theologies and all of that would cause some way out things wouldn't it you know a great church would have a but but one thing that would almost always go up is they'd have a great building they'd have big numbers on that board over there that's got the attendance and the budget and all that stuff right Right? A great church has big numbers. and What is it that makes a great church? Individuals? Not the preachers. <laughs> but that would be on the list. That would be on the list. No. What makes a great church is when the individuals that are part of the church are Christians. When they're who they're supposed to be, when you and I are who we're supposed to be, this is a great church doesn't matter how many numbers are on the board. It doesn't matter the size of the building. It doesn't matter who's in the pulpit or who's anywhere else. What matters is if the individuals who make up the totality of this congregation are who we're supposed to be. And so as John writes this now, he is grateful of the fact that what he has heard is that that they're a great church, even with the things they're suffering because of, well, people are walking faithfully according to God. Verse 5, but they got a problem. And now I plead with you. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. I see some emphasis there. It's like he's repeated these things. There's got to be a reason he repeated them, right? You know, I I, I want you to recognize that it's not, you can't be an isolated Christian. You can't. You can't be an isolated member of the family. You're either a member of the family or you're not. So if you're in this spiritual family, you're a member of the family, and you won't survive as an individual member of the family. You have a responsibility to each other. See what we what we like to think in our world today, whether you're talking about in the religious world as a whole or even sometimes unfortunately in the church, is that look, my relationship with God is between me and him, and whatever I do beyond you or whatever, it's just between me and him, and 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 will this go along the way that I think that this ought to go? And we and there is a sense in which I'm going to stand before God on my own, right? I mean, obviously with Jesus, but not with you, right? So there is a sense in that, but the bottom line is We are intricately connected to each other. And as such, I have responsibilities to you as a member of the family. And you have responsibilities to me. And so all of this walking in truth that they're doing is only going to keep going if they do it together. Remember how the Israelites, you know, can you imagine Joshua taking over from Moses? Can you imagine that task? The awesomeness of, I mean, he's seen all of this, right? He's been like the right-hand man of Moses for all these years. He's seen it. Now he's got to take over for him. And we read, in fact, a couple times recently, we talked about the fear that would be involved with that. And yet he became such a great leader that Israel stayed faithful to God. And the people that he prepared around him kept Israel faithful to God. And the very next generation, what did we read? Everybody did what was right in their own eyes you know why that happened because they weren't connected to each other anymore whatever's right for me is right for me you do whatever you want to do but the problem with that is what happens is even if we're in truth because it's what we had from the truth change so even if we're in truth what we had from the beginning we got to stay with it we got to stay with it he emphasized from the beginning if you don't stay with it what happens is you change you're not the family that God wants you to be for two reasons. One is because you're not together, and the other one is because you're no longer walking in truth. All right, keep going. There's a connecting word here in verse 7. Some versions may not have it. I think that it's unfortunate because it is in the text. Uh, some, for whatever reason, have just not translated it, but verse 7 starts with a connecting word that talks about why it was that they it's so important that they stay with what they had from the beginning and the relationship to each other for Many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess that confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an Antichrist. He brought that up before, didn't he? In First John, didn't he say there were people out there who were against Christ. There were people who didn't believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh? So he just said to them, You gotta be you gotta keep walking together, you've gotta keep walking in his commands that you've had from the very beginning, and here's the reason. People are out there trying to deceive you. Trying to deceive you. And what was their deception? What did he say there in verse 7? Jesus is not, was not in the flesh. He's writing to Christians. What is it that would cause a Christian, which by its very definition means somebody who is like Christ or like Messiah, right? What would cause a Christian to believe that Jesus wasn't the Christ in the flesh? That could lead him away, but listen, if you've got the truth, what would cause you to turn to error? Yeah, there's a few answers to that question. Sometimes you can have the truth, but not keep studying it and walking in it, and then you can be deceived by somebody. Sometimes you can hear something that you wanted to believe all along, and you'll follow along with it just because it's what you want to believe. Sometimes it's because of pressure from somewhere else. You ever known anybody who, for example, this is an easy, uh, easy illustration because it happens sometimes frequently. You ever know anybody that, who knew the truth about marriage, divorce, and remarriage? about the exception to marriage for life, and yet because a family member got into a situation like that, they changed? Why? Why would you change? Because you don't want to be their judge, and you don't want them mad at you either, right? You don't want the conflict or the confrontation. So we have these people who are living near the end of the first century, and Rome is really ramping up the pressure on Christians, and they're bringing people in. And they're challenging them. Recant your faith. You know, we have records of some of the people who lived pretty quickly after this event. In fact, one individual we have a record of, his name was Polycarp. He was a uh, student of John. Uh, So he's evidently even training with John now. He will be uh, a student of John after John's exile on the Isle of Patmos. And yet we know that Polycarp was brought before the, the city and before his family and told to recant Christ... Or be burned at the stake. And he was burned at the stake. So here's a question. If you could just say, maybe Jesus really didn't come in the flesh and survive, could you not then rationalize, well, I think God, I could serve God more in the days that are ahead that I'm alive than to lose my life today and not be able to serve him today. Couldn't you rationalize back and away? So if you got a teacher that shows up in town that says, look, John's just too hard. You know, he's closed-minded. He, he, he doesn't realize this is a new world we're living in today. So he, he, he doesn't know that, you know, it'd be okay. It, you don't have to be so public about it. Just back up and, you know, just make the statement. You live. You protect your family. You protect your children. Could you see how that'd be tough? Keep reading. Oh, and I would point out again the word antichrist. Okay, that's not... John said they were already there. These people are already dealing with them. It's not some future world power, right? Okay, verse 8. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Look to yourselves. Remember in the book of 1 Corinthians the church in Corinth was suffering. They were suffering. Most of it was self-inflicted, but they were suffering. And so Paul writes that letter to correct a lot of things that were going on. And one of the things that was going on is they had abused the Lord's Supper. You know, they had made it this kind of social feast or fellowship feast with each other that was apart from what God expected it. And then this meal that it became, it became about, you know, I had more than you or you had more than me and I'm more important to you or you're more important to me. And it became a big party, a big party about social status. And, and what Paul tells them in that in that book is, you got to examine yourself. See, I'm going to answer before God, and so I better know who I am, right? And a part of our responsibility, a part of why God has given us this this command to partake the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week, is because if I don't have this anchor pulling me back to where I examine myself at all regularly, what happens is over time I quit doing it, right? Nobody's ever. Okay, let me say this again. I'm going to tell on myself. Uh, you know that since we've been married, since Terry and I have been married, I have gained 34% weight. That means I was very skinny, obviously, when we got married, 34%. Not one of those pounds surprised me. But then all of a sudden you wake up and say, man, I put on 45 pounds, right? Is that the way it works? You don't wake up one more and look in the mirror and say, I gained a pound yesterday. Now you wake up and look in the mirror and say... Or you look at a picture from last month and say, whoa, right? Okay, that happens in our spirituality as well. If we don't hang on every, you know, constantly, but especially every first day of the week to this anchor that causes us to examine ourselves to know who we are, eventually what happens is we've changed who we are. And and we didn't even know it. Just one day we wake up and look in the mirror and say, well, I'm different than I used to be. So what John is saying at this point is because these... These teachers are out here. What you have to recognize is you have to be responsible for yourself. You need to know. You need to know what you believe. You need to know why you believe it. How many people do you suppose are in the church who are, quote, Christians who really don't know why they believe what they believe, who really don't know why they take the Lord's Supper every first day of the week, who really don't know what it is about baptism that's significant who really don't know why it is that we choose to worship the way that we worship. And I'm not talking about newborns in Christ. I'm talking about some of us who have been Christians for a long time, but believe what we believe because mom or dad told us to believe it, or the preacher told us to believe it. And when we're questioned, that's what happens to our kids. We go off to college, they have mom and dad's faith, they have the preacher's faith or the youth minister's faith, and all of a sudden they get questioned and it wasn't their faith. It's got to be your faith. John says you've got to pay attention to yourself. You've got to pay attention to recognize that all this race that you've been running, you finish it. Wasn't that Paul, what Paul said? I have finished the race. Didn't he say in the Philippian letter, I continue on. I continue toward the end. Keep reading. Actually, let me read 8 and then connect it to 9. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we've worked for but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. This is the challenge here, and this is really simple. And by the way, the word transgression there means go beyond. Go beyond. So what John has now said is you have to examine yourself because these teachers are out here trying to deceive everybody. So you've got to keep examining yourself and keep walking on this journey that you began a long time ago. And the reason you need to do that is because you need to recognize that anybody who goes beyond what God has said, what God has instructed us to be, has gone beyond God. That's simple, isn't it? And if you've gone beyond God, you're not walking with Him anymore. You know there's a perfect illustration of that in the Old Testament. There was a prophet by the name of Jonah who was told by God to go to a city. Do you remember? Nineveh. He was to go to a city. Is that where he went? No, where did he go? He went to Tarshish, didn't he? Or at least that's the way he headed. He went to Tarshish, and you remember the account. We tell our kids about this great fish fish that swallowed up Jonah and spit him out on the ground, and then he went to... uh, he went to the city and he preached just like God said. And then we usually stop there because after that he's sitting outside the city and the people are repenting. But the thing is, that part about when he's sitting outside the city, what happens is he's left God. I don't mean in the sense of, you know, he's turned away and like he did when he walked away to Tarshish. I mean he's left God because he's gone to the place where he said in his own mind, Okay, God, I went and told them, now wipe them out. Judge them now. I told them, you judge them. They didn't deserve it anyway. And God said, you know what? There are a whole lot of people in this city who are children even. You want me to wipe them all out? See, he got ahead of God. And that's what happens with us. When we don't examine ourselves and stay with what we knew from the beginning, what makes us who we are, when we go beyond that, we're not with him anymore. When we go beyond, God has been so specific with things like worship. This is our big question. People say, well, God doesn't say don't do that. God doesn't say don't do that. You know, from the very beginning... Until the end, God has in every period of time told man exactly what he wanted in worship. And anybody that went beyond that suffered every single time. So why is it that we don't have a big band up here to entertain us in worship? Is it because God said don't do it? Because God told us how to do it. And when he tells us how to do it, and I go beyond that, it may be entertaining. It may be spiritual. It may even have some Bible in it. But God's not with it anymore, is he? Keep going. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. And this gets more challenging. And by the way, well, let me hit this on two fronts. Uh, there was a time... I guess society has changed, but it was especially true back in their day, and it was in my younger life as well, that, you know, you had a, preachers that would travel around quite a bit and speak at meetings or lectures or whatever, or they'd just have visiting preachers at churches. And usually what happened is when this visiting preacher was in, it was almost like people would fight over getting this visiting preacher to go eat with them or stay in their house or whatever, right? Not a literal fight. I mean, anybody else remember the days in which the visiting preacher would be put in a house or whatever? I don't really like that. I I'd love it to be home in a hotel But anyway, that's the way it used to happen. But here's the problem. What would happen is I realize my responsibility to help this person, right? And so I take them in and help them, and they continue on with the gospel. But what if that person and what he teaches is not teaching truth anymore? Do I still have that responsibility to them? Not only do I not have that responsibility, but it's wrong for me to do it. It puts me in a position where I perpetuate what they're teaching which is error. On top of that, any influence I have on the creation where I am, it now tells them that I think this is a, you know, a good situation, a good person, a good teaching and they now hear that too. And by my influence, I hurt not only other places where you might teach, but also here. So whoever is without God, I'm not going to support them further in their teaching is the point he's saying. I'm not going to support them further in their teaching. And the reason is is because What good does it do if people go out and teach people how to be lost? Now, it goes too far today. I I don't want to get too far off topic, but I'm not going to finish the next book anyway. So let me step off just a minute. One of the things that I am struggling with with people today, and I have been chatted with a few times uh, over the internet or email or whatever is we have this somehow this belief system that there's like 40 layers of fellowship, meaning that you know, let's just, I'll, Marshall's sitting up in the front, so Marshall and I are friends and brothers, and ev- that makes everybody that Marshall's a friend and brother too connected to me, and then when you go out that, whatever, 10 people, you go 10 more people out, and then that, whoever they're friends and family with, then connects back to me, right, and then you got every one of them that connects out further, and the reason I bring that up is because I got a message, I don't know, within the last two weeks connecting people that I know their soundness, I know the truth they present, I know the teaching they've done, and because they spoke somewhere where there was a guy who spoke somewhere, who spoke somewhere, who spoke somewhere with somebody that was in error, they connected it all the way back. And you know what happens when that happens? We are no longer walking together. So I want you to be careful about this. What we're dealing with is people who are proclaiming truth... And people who are proclaiming error and I'm supposed to support truth and I'm not supposed to support error. If I join with them, I've gone beyond God. All right, let's finish this up and go to the next book. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you also. That idea of elect sister, so wherever he's writing from, what he's saying is the church here is. Sending their greetings to you as well. See that connection with Lex Sister being in church and not a person? So it says, I'd like to write a lot more, but I'm going to send this letter. Okay, so third John. Now we've got some names that are individuals that are going to come up. You know, one of the things that happened toward the end of the first century or started happening, it really didn't develop that much for a while, is that people started enjoying power, Right? And so you had elderships that were established in congregations, and you had preachers that were preaching places, and all of a sudden people started feeling important. You know, if I'm the preacher, what I know is you think I'm important, right? And the more important I am, the more power I have over you. And in the eldership, sometimes you have strong personalities, and they say, I'm going to get my way by being powerful, and then I'm going to be important, and then I'm going to take control. That started happening. And that's a problem that comes up in 3 John. The elder, again, he's older, to the beloved Gavis, Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. I'm wondering whether Gaius here has been sick or if John's just saying, look, I hope you have a long life because I know you're teaching the truth. I don't think it really matters. The point he's making is this guy's teaching and walking in the truth, right? Okay. Okay. Uh, for I rejoice greatly, so he's got a connection, connecting word, when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth, have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. I hope I hope this is all, it hasn't always been true. I know it hasn't always been true. But I hope that it can always be said of me that I'm, that I'm healthier spiritually than I am physically. Because that's more important, right? So John is praying that this Gaius is healthy physically, but he's saying, I want to connect it to the fact that I know where you are spiritually. And I'm thankful for that. And the reason I know it, and the wording he uses here, he talks about people coming and reporting as to who, who Gaius is and what he's living. Those words both are those words that I talk about frequently about things that keep happening. So it's not like somebody just showed up and said, hey, John Gaius is really doing well. It's like every report he was getting from people was about how strong Gaius is and what's going on with him and the, the, what he's offering to the churches and all of that. And so John says, you know, I'm just so encouraged by the fact that you're walking in the truth. And so my prayer is that your health stays strong enough that you can keep walking in it. Keep going. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. So he's had a connection to people outside too, right? It's not just about the family. It's about the fact the family is supposed to influence the world. Who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you do well. Because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. This is the same thing he was writing in chapter 2, just worded a little differently. Gaius is not only encouraging the work of the church, active in the work of the church, but these preachers that have been traveling around who are teaching the truth, he's sending them on. Now, at this point in the writing of this book, you don't really have Jew-Gentile, do you? So why would he use the word Gentile here when he's saying he doesn't take anything from the Gentiles? They're all Gentiles for the most part. He's not talking about a race of people or a, uh, a culture of people. He's talking about the difference between those who are, at least the way they word it, Christians or not. So he said, "You know, isn't it a shame? Isn't it a shame when somebody who has the ability, the opportunity, the desire to teach can't, the teach the truth can't go out and teach it because nobody will support them?" And that's sad is what he's saying. And what I know is, Gaius is the kind of person that's doing that. And it benefits the church there, and it benefits others. So he does have fellowship with the guy who's showing up, guys who are showing up teaching truth, right? Okay. Wow, well, I am out of time. Well, I will tell you what, maybe we'll pick up there the on Wednesday night, and then move on to uh, to Jude, and maybe we won't finish Jude. We'll see. We'll uh, we'll go as far as we can. Let's close with a prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity to be here today to study Your Word, and we're so thankful, Father, for the lessons that are here that we can grow closer to each other and that we can grow closer to you, that we can encourage each other, and that we can reach out to those who are around us. Help us always, Father, to seek to glorify you, honor you, and not trust in ourselves. Forgive us where we fail you. In Christ's name, amen.